Welcome to episode 3 of the third season of HyperTalks. I'm your host, Ebba Zimmerman, and with me today I have my co-host, Jonathan Kevin. Hello. And our guest, Tobias Alin. Hey! You're an experienced design director for Minecraft. That is true. Today's topic is radical honesty when it comes to business culture. Before we're going to start talk about the topic, I propose we do a check-in. Yes, and uh, I will propose a check-in that we check in with an emoji, or emojicon as they're mm. called. And okay. uh, Ebba, do you want to start? I can start. I check in with the emoji that has its hands together, like thankfulness. Yeah. Because I'm very glad that we have you as our guest today, and that I have my amazing co-host, and also a big shout out to Beppo Studios, where we record these podcasts. We're very thankful to collaborate with Would them. Would not be possible without you guys. Thank you. And Tobias? Yes. I am definitely the hard eyes emoji. Oh. I am the, the one with the tongue out and one eye blinking. It's my favorite emoji. And I'm a little wild and crazy, so I'm going to go with that one. We just learned a new method of storytelling at Hyper Island. And it's called the past, present, future oh. technique. Who taught you that? <laughs> it was actually you. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, we would like to get to know you through some similar questions. What have you done in the past? I uh, I spent a lot of time on Spotify, and that's really where I grew up, I think. So my background is a lot within UI design. I sort of tumbled into Spotify and accidentally was made responsible for the UI design of all the apps. How do one tumble into Spotify? The Rasmus Andersson was the, the designer at Spotify who had made like all the branding. He didn't make the logo, but he made the app. He made the website. He made pretty much everything. He hired me together with Andrea Rosengren, and then he w- was supposed to be responsible responsible for the redesign. I started, and he quit the same week. And then it felt like I tumbled into this mess where also someone had, just like the week before, stolen his computer. So he had no, like... PSDs that was used at that time, right? No sketch. And um, I just had a bunch of assets and the final product that was in production. And then I had to like redo everything from scratch and just recreate everything and try to understand the company with no mentor or anything. So that's how I tumbled into Spotify. And then I was there, we grew the design team and I was there for a few years. And then I decided to learn Objective-C Started my own company, launched an app, went to GitHub, then a bit of a research company called Lookback too, and now I'm at Minecraft doing experience design. And that's the present. Yes. So what are you doing at Minecraft now? So Minecraft is a special company. They uh, they really became successful without using any of the modern tools to build the UI. If if we if we say modern tools as like you actually measure how things go and then you. Based on that, react and you you iterate on your product. They went pretty much with gut feeling, community feedback, and became one of the biggest games of all time. But now we at least don't want to regress. We don't want to introduce future features where we create a, a worse product. So we're trying to introduce more modern tools. So I'm driving a team where we try to redesign basically the UI in Minecraft. And um, it looks a bit like Windows 95, Right now, I'm not sure if you've seen it 
recently. It's blocky. It's very blocky. It's but known for being blocky. It's known for being blocky. And it's blocky in a nice way in game, but the UI is like blocky in a Windows 95 way, which yeah. I think is, is a special kind of retro that I don't particularly like. Maybe some do, but it's um, we're trying to change that. So what do you want to do in the future? First of all, I want to, the, the very big and lofty goal is to make Minecraft actually known for its great UI too. I think now it's more of a friction point. Other than that, my big goal is actually to start a school. Digital business or? I'd, I'd focus more on the startup sector, especially if you want to be at a place that transforms like society. I think startup is a cool place to be. And then I would focus more on, so one critical thinking, which is part of DDS. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, a bit more on front-end development. And especially if you look at, I think, the most exciting design tooling is getting more and more technical, too. There there are tools like Figma that are not necessarily technical, but it's still really interesting. But if you look at Framer, for example, you have a design tool that suddenly embraces JavaScript mm. or CoffeeScript in this, in this instance, but they may might move over to JavaScript. But anyhow, it's just really technical. And I think... Traditionally, at, at schools, they have seen subjects at, as very, very different. Hyper Island really started when you had a lot of people with experience from print and media. And then just like interactive art director really comes from that day and age. We're like, you are an art director, but now you need to learn the interactive stuff. And so that has been living on. And I think, therefore, also a lot of schools don't expect enough of the students. Programming is not that difficult to learn. You don't have to be a developer to learn programming. Like you did this early in, in DDS too. And I think if you just spend even more time on it, it will be so valuable. And you can start automating some design too. It's just a more powerful tool set. So I'm thinking in that school to have at least two tracks, one design, one development, but focus on the pragmatism of hyper just like start doing what you're doing in real life. So if you're on the developer track, start using current technologies, whatever they are at, at the time. Now it would probably be React and start building React apps. If you're a designer, start using Sketch, Figma, all the latest tools, while uh, also coding in Framer and doing critical thinking and data analysis and understanding how qualitative and quantitative data works. And I think so. So it would be a lot of DDS, but less Google Analytics, less data-driven marketing, less ads. I don't like ads. <laughs> but yeah, so pretty pretty close to DSS, a DDS. I, d- I don't even know what your program is called. <laughs> but I think it sounds really cool. And there's definitely a lot of work that can be done when it comes to schools in Sweden. You can disrupt the whole industry. Entire industry. Turning back to the past then, what's your education? It is hyper, actually. So I went straight from uh, gymnasium here to another building, quit that, then went to hyper. And I went to DMC, Digital Media Creative, 2008 to 2010. How was the transition between Spotify and Minecraft? Because you had a little stuff in between. Yeah, I had a lot of stuff in between. Um, do you mean that the, like the biggest differences between the two companies? I would or? say that's the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. So I was actually back at Spotify uh, just before starting Minecraft again as a consultant and just like seeing the before and after between all the other things that I did. 
And Spotify is such a data-driven culture. Like, there's no such thing as true unless you can prove it with usually quantitative data. So you have to run a test, and you have to prove that your success metric is you, you saw a significant change in your ABCS cell or whatever. Whereas at Minecraft, that's never been a thing. We've run a few tests in like 10 years. It's mostly gut feeling, and that just changes how you talk on a daily basis. We have Jeb, for example, at Minecraft, who's like the voice of Minecraft. And you end up with that when you have this gut feeling approach. You can have like the truth as a living person walking around, which which is not a negative thing. It's just different. Whereas at Spotify, any team can just go up and say, hey, we want to try this thing. No one will stop you because you can try anything. And then if it works because you proved it, then you can launch it. Do you think there's any negative things about always having data-driven decisions? Mm, absolutely. I think some things we, we can't measure. Like it's very difficult to measure ethics, yeah. morality, things like that. Yeah. And I think since we can't pick those up with numbers, easily at least, we can't measure happiness either. It can absolutely, I think, drive a company to make worse and worse decisions from, from those standpoints, like morally and ethically. So usually you try to change retention. Like if a user is still using your product after several days. And then maybe you run a test to see how far can you push someone. How bad can streaming be without someone dropping out? And running a test like that, I think you can compare it to um, being in, in a relationship and then seeing like, what can I change in this relationship without my partner breaking up with me? <laughs> That's the worst thing I've ever heard. <laughs> don't, don't do that. Don't, <laughs> no, don't, don't do to. this. Don't do this. But stick with me. It's like, so if you, you just stop using the dishwasher and be like, let's see how this retains. And you continue doing that. And then at some point down the line, things will break and the relationship will be gone, probably. And then you might consider that to be the thing that you tried just then. Maybe it was like, stop picking up clothes from the floor. But it's, that's not really it, right? It's a lot of things in combination. And though everything that is a lot of things in combination is really difficult to pick up on, and therefore you can just like lose track of them. At Minecraft, on the other hand, it's like, we have a lot of people just like, no, that feels bad. That, that button is too big. We don't want to be too pushy. And then it's easier to like lean on moral and ethics and, and that sort of things without data, I'd say, in some circumstances. Because I know like when playing a game and they make a change, I know as a user, like, oh, this is bad. They shouldn't be doing this. So at Minecraft, do you have any people that are playing actively? Yeah, we have a lot of really influential streamers. And usually if we do, we do things like beta, beta releases or mm -hmm. snapshots. And yeah. Really quickly, they review everything. They do a long recording, and we'll listen to them. When they post things on Reddit, and we, we, we read that, and then especially if it's read-worthy, it's posted internally on Slack, and people like discuss it quickly. So it's a quick turnaround, and yes, absolutely. And sometimes it could be even be that we don't agree, but since they have so much influence, we might actually consider doing it just to make it better for those who agree with that streamer. Yeah. When, like, these uh, companies you work for, Spotify and Minecraft, they're both very impressive. Do you ever feel like a fraud at work? <laughs> Actually, no. I don't feel... I feel like I haven't had this problem. I could feel like a fraud socially, though. 
I could meet someone and they think I'm nice and I'd be like, I'm not that nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's my fraud area. It's not professionally. But what I can feel though is like, and I want to talk more about this later, but someone can trust your advice more than they should just because you've been at a big company. I'm not sure what I did at Spotify that actually cost the success of Spotify. It could have been that I could have worked as a janitor there and they would have been equally successful. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm not sure what I can judge looking back at my experience at either Minecraft or Spotify or GitHub. Like, oh yeah, I totally changed the trajectory of that company. I don't know. It could be that I made it worse. So I, I try to be humble about that, but I I don't feel like a fraud. That's good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> Because I feel like a fraud sometimes when I do work and I'm like, am I really qualified for this work? Mm-hmm. So when you came to Spotify and that person left and you had all these tasks to take on, how did you handle the pressure or the things you needed to produce for Spotify? And feeling competent enough to do yeah. it? Yeah. I remember not being that stressed out about it. I've at that time I I probably worked with UI design for six, seven years already. And I felt pretty confident in that area. Probably overconfident though. I think that was the issue. I was young, I had my first job. It was a really cool job. I think I handled the pressure by being young. Yeah. <laughs> and foolish and naive. I think now I have much more pressure, especially with... So so the difference is also Spotify is a product where people care about the music. So if I changed a button, no one would notice. I would be on Twitter like, look, it's it's really pretty now. Some UI person somewhere would be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. See the pixels, pixels, they're so sharp. Whereas now, Minecraft is a product, which is, is the product. It's like I would be changing the music in Spotify. The job that yeah. I do now affects the actual thing they're there for. So now I think I have much more pressure. And we handle that by just tracking more carefully and slowly. We don't do a big launch. or We won't. We'll, we'll launch with a small segment of users and then ask them kindly to like consider, please consider this change and hope they just like it. Do you have any advice for us when we go out to the work industry? to feel competent enough. Right, yeah. I think one thing with Hyper is that also people criticize Hyper for is a lot of people go out with Hybris, which is a good thing. I think it you create an alternative reality just by having that. Yeah. I'd say try to go faster than you're used to at Hyper. People at a lot of companies are really slow and they get used to being so slow. And at, at Hyper, you do these cross programs, like three days, you launch a concept. Yeah. At a regular company in three days, you have meetings mm-hmm. and some coffee. So like, don't get used to the slow pace of these old companies that you might enter into. And then I think you'll do wonders. Yeah. Okay, so the topic that we wanted to discuss today is radical honesty. Would you like to explain what that means? I can explain what that means. I think people use it in different ways. It's radical honesty is mostly used by Netflix and that with those two words. And I think Patty McCord started using it primarily and she just released a book called Powerful uh, where she talks about where that comes from. But it's also generally a thing that we try to use, maybe not in the same way at Minecraft. And uh, Pixar uses it in their ways. 
And Netflix focuses more on she. So Patty worked as the talent manager, talent acquisition officer, or something for fourteen years, like forever, nineteen ninety eight to two thousand twelve, something like that. And she was there during several transitions. You know, Netflix went from this shipping things to people company, like physical DVDs and and VHS. Cassettes. You got them in the mail. Ah, crazy. Yeah. Mm. And it was a successful company. And then they moved to streaming. And now they're moving into production or they moved to production already. And so they were in this situation where they just had to rapidly change a lot of times. So naturally, then McCord focuses a lot on honesty in recruiting. So, for example, if if you don't have a good place at the company, maybe you need to look for something new or we'll fire you. Mm. That's like a, a type of radical honesty. Yeah. And actually, that's her focus. But I think it's more interesting to focus on maybe the Pixar side or, or what we're doing. So on, at Pixar, for example, Ed Catmull writes about in uh, Creativity Inc., his book on just like how Pixar and, and Disney works, mm. on their meetings where they all the directors meet in, in a brain trust. And then they're just like radically honest about how a movie feels like. Yeah. Like this this storyline sucks, it's, it doesn't work, like it doesn't make me happy, it's trying to make me happy, but I don't really care about it. They just try to be radically honest. I think naturally then whatever you're disciplined in, you're going to try to focus on applying that within your discipline. So at Minecraft, for example, I don't like design reviews where you talk about what you've done as in just update people because you don't get to the honesty part unless you actually sit and work with the design. So something that we try to do in our team is that we print out all the design, put it on a table, and then rather than saying, hey, I did this, it's evident because it's on the table, you say, this is my problem. This is what I tried. And then you have pens, and you can start drawing on other people's design and say, what if you try this? I think that's really scary. Yeah. A lot of people will be like, oh, no, it's, that's my soul. Yeah, <laughs> You're using a red marker on yeah. my soul big x over yeah. the whole project and i think at hyper the focus is on process right you you practice feedback but you practice it on like how i interpret you how i interpret you how you interpret me and it's on process but we don't focus on what like feedbacking what i think that's really important especially if you're a designer so that's what we focus on a lot and just then trying to create a safe culture where you feel safe to share and safe to criticize without hurting someone's feelings. Yeah, but like I know there's a model, there's several models about taking feedback, receiving feedback and mm. how to do it because it's it's tough speaking from the eye. I know it's uh, it can hurt, especially yeah. when it's your baby or your product if you put a lot of effort and love into. So do you have like a concrete tip for how to be better at receiving feedback? So one thing that usually happens, especially at at Hyper, I think, but also at companies, is that two people do uh, take at the same design. And then you start comparing to widely different designs. And then you get feedback, sometimes implicitly, through through that conversation. It's just so difficult to wrap your head around. I think I can have a difficult time with that. Also, someone can say, like, it's ugly, I don't like it, or something. And then I think a good thing to do is just try to unpack as much as possible because it the harder it is to digest it i think generally the more abstract the feedback is and you just have to dig deeper yeah 
And if someone suggests, hey, let's do this instead, you have to like ask, what's your hypothesis? Why would that work better? Like, what problem is that solving? Mm. And I think the more you unpack, the easier it is to deal with it. Right. Do you have any advice on how to be honest when giving feedback? Because I think that's a challenge for me, at least. Sometimes when I'm in TDS and I'm like, should I say this? Is it worth the conflict? Then I'm like, ah, no. Yeah, during team development sessions, which yeah. you have. Radical honesty, it should be, but it's hard to practice that. Yes. Yeah. So how do one start? Yeah. Exactly that happened to me all the time at Hyper. It's like, mm. oh, shit. I don't, I just don't want to deal with this. Like, no. I, I can just... I can just pretend that everything is fine and then I can walk out of this room and then next module I'll be with someone else. Yeah, you just power <laughs> through Crossing those my hours. fingers. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and it's really easy too to just look at someone's bad sides and try to formulate them as actually good feedback. Be like, I really like how straightforward you are, but what I really want to say is like, damn, <laughs> you hurt my feelings all the time. Yeah. I don't want to deal with that. I think TDS is a special thing too. It generally doesn't happen that way in the industry. I'd, I'd focus more on getting used to feedback outside of that context. I usually, so in real life, what happens is I, I book one-on-ones and I book walks. And when you're walking together, I think it's easier to give and receive feedback because you're you're pretty close to each other. You're walking like shoulder to shoulder, but you actually don't have to always look into the other person's eyes, yeah. which is, can be relieving, actually. So that that's a trick I use, which is pretty broad. Mm-hmm. But um, I use it with my team and just, like, ask them for feedback and give them feedback in that setting. And I think it's, it's relaxing and less intense than, like, a four-hour session in a circle. Yeah. How does radical honesty work with data-driven decisions? Because mm. it feels like it's a lot opinion-based, yeah. And then maybe if somebody gives you feedback on design and you're like, well, I don't care about your opinion. I care about what the data says. I think, first of all, especially when we talk about quantitative data and big data, we generally think that data has to have a certain quality to be valuable. But subjective thoughts is also a type of data. And I think that the real concept behind radical honesty is that whatever data that we can find, we need to dig it up. And radical honesty is a way to get closer to any sort of data that we have. And a way to be honest about your data is also to just say that this this is a hunch. Or my data point is actually that, hey, I, the thing that I'm trying, I saw Facebook do it. Mm-hmm. And some people might act that way and then present an idea, but present it as if it's original because they feel like maybe someone will think I'm stupid or non-creative for just stealing something but it's it's a good data point so i think you should then be be honest about that and say hey th- here's my data facebook tried it that makes it maybe better yeah maybe a better idea because they try a lot of their ideas so it could be that if we're lucky they have quant data behind their idea so then at least it should be a good de- guess for us so that's that's one yeah, way I think, yeah yeah but yeah. it can also be so for example at a company, I think this is a secret, we try to do a very interesting process where we try to make the product worse. So we launched A-B tests to, and when we, we removed things, we removed features. And then we saw how that affected the retention, for example. In a way to try to learn, like, what is the most important thing? Imagine you have, like, a playground or something and you, you remove the um, slides. Yeah. And then you look at how, how many kids <laughs> don't come back now. 
and and try to just assess what's the most important object within within the playground. So we tried that sort of thing. And then I think you should also have arguments about what are you actually learning. So that that's where radical honesty could play in. And I had a huge fight where I said, we're not learning the things we think we're learning. That's That's a metaphor that plays well along with this concept. I said that Really what we're doing is like we're playing basketball and removing the ball and then trying to measure how's the retention. Oh. It's like, of course, whatever we remove is going to be horrible. It's not designed to work like that. Neither would be adding another ball. Like that wouldn't work either. I would not want to watch that game. Right? It would no. be chaos. And then you have to change everything. So usually just how you interpret data could also be um, an area where you have to be radically honest about what you think you're learning and have a lot of difficult discussions. One thing that I think is interesting with article honesty is that sometimes I feel like when we give each other advice about the industry, I imagine what if there was a big conference in the Savannah or, or somewhere and like the, the elephants would be on stage and they would be like, hey, you should, you should all have a trunk. It's so cool. You can pick things up and like splash with water and whatever. And then all these animals are listening and being like, what, what the fuck? Like that doesn't suit me at all. And the kangaroos would be like, no, 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 you should get a bigger pouch. That's really powerful. You don't need another arm. Like, you could mm-hmm. just put things in your pouch. And the same thing happens when we try to give each other general advice from different points of view. Like, Spotify has a really easy time measuring things, and they're a big company. Measuring things can make you go really slow if you're a small startup. And so if you're a small startup, you look up to Spotify and be like, how did they come to where they are? Like, how did it become successful? And and employee will say, we use data. It, it's really good. Try it too. But when I started Spotify, we didn't use data really that much. That's Maybe like, you don't have enough data. Yeah, we didn't have enough. Start. Yeah, we didn't have a lot of data. We, we made a lot of gut feeling guesses. Yeah. We didn't have metrics even set up. At some points, we didn't know how many like viewed an artist page. We just went with gut feeling. So the actual process to getting to a successful company was very different. But then you could, as a small company, look at the big companies and think like, "Oh, I need a trunk," but you don't need a trunk, right? You need something else. Yeah. So that's what I think is interesting about radical honesty, but because I think it's more like talking about horizontal slice, like if you were talking about breathing or like food. It's something that you can apply to whatever size you are, wherever you are in your lifetime as a company. And therefore, I think it's an extra interesting area to mm. talk about. But is it applicable to all companies? Because sometimes when it comes to the tech industry, it feels mm. like it's a lot of buzzwords. But does it work, for example, in the public sector? Would they be able to practice radical honesty at work? I've never worked in the public sector. I don't know. <laughs> I, I have. You have? Uh, okay, let's hear it. I've never practiced radical honesty. I'm sorry. <laughs> I wished I had. So, but is it like specific to tech? No, you industry? just, it's just, radical honesty, is, radical honesty is sort of a buzzword too. It's just like, yeah. if we just talk about honesty and being straightforward mm. and like revealing all your cards, I think that's closer to the truth. But I know, I know some Americans come here to Sweden and they're like, it's like Swedes have meetings where they don't agree on anything and then just book another meeting mm-hmm. they have a meeting about having another meeting yeah and so i think that it's probably especially common within the public sector i don't know though i haven't worked there but well yes it is doesn't move so fast kind of slow to be honest and meetings about meetings is, is a recurring theme yeah 
do you think radical honesty works if you're a very introvert person? Because it sounds a bit like you have to have the courage mm. to speak up. So we we talked about this at Hyper too, the the introverted brainstorm session, which is I think maybe a parallel to this, but no, definitely it's more difficult as an introverted person to sometimes just have conversations overall, right, and express your opinion. So we have to think about that. And one of my favorite tools in a more like exploration setting is the tribe framework. So this is something that I learned at Sachi and Sachi when I was shadowing them as a as a hyper student actually like 10 years ago, but I've never found it documented ever online. I just know they use it. But what they do is is essentially if you're in a brainstorm session, people throw on ideas, you put them up on a wall, great. Some people have one idea and then they just wait until the end and then they say it and then people shoot it down maybe and then they're like fuck. Yeah. Yeah, that didn't go well. So um, a tribe session is when you gather as a group, one person owns the problem. So that person explains the problem, what we're here to solve, and then you split up in pairs. So one and one, and then you go out, and then you brainstorm in that setting. And that is generally easier for an introverted person. Just like have a conversation. You can go broad. You can also just have one idea. You can go deep and really explore that idea in detail. And then so you do that for a few minutes and then you go back to the big group and then you go around like clockwise and everyone just explains what they talked about. And then you split again and now you've stolen the best ideas from the people around you. And then you start discussing again. So it's a, it's a very different kind of brainstorming that way because you get the the broadness through listening to people, but then you get a lot of space to discuss and go deep. And you can do that several times back and forth, back and forth. And that's a brainstorm format that I think is is way easier to approach as an introverted person. And how does that apply to radical honesty if you work at a company where they practice radical honesty a lot and you're yeah. an introvert person? Then it could be that you, you have to do similar things for for just feedback sessions too. One-on-one walks. We're, we're not applying this at Minecraft. I realize now when, when you ask me. So we meet in a big group and we just throw around ideas. And that could definitely be a difficult setting if if you're less secure about something. So if radical honesty is so important for companies like Netflix, Spotify, Minecraft, what are things that are not so important when it comes to business culture? All right, so we we don't know if it's that important then to to be like humble about it. So especially if we look at figuring out what made a company successful, it's so difficult. And this is sort of a, common theme when I lecture but you could you could look back at Spotify and be like what was the success factor was it agile like was that a part of it like no maybe not we started doing that 2011 ish before that you just did whatever you wanted sort of yeah and we we didn't have that much experience either Uh, a lot of us uh, some came from KTH and never worked a startup before and, and succeeded was it maybe that Sweden, as a music product, it was um, trying to try this concept within a market where broadband adoption was going really well. Like we had a really fast broadband compared to the U.S., for example. Was that the success factor? Was it maybe that they, they bought MicroTorrent, uTorrent, and used that as the like dis- distribution model for the songs? Mm. Everything just correlates with their success. Yeah. So I think it's difficult to tell if even radical honesty is that important. We just like to think about things. 
So what I usually bring up is the best research that I've found on process in general is the Good Judgment study by Philip Tetlock, where they, they measured people making predictions over 20 years. And they found personality traits that didn't just correlate with making better predictions, but actually they found a causational relationship. And they did that by first finding a correlation and then teaching those traits in an A-B test within the study mm. to some groups. And then they saw how that changed their performance. And that was basically be nuanced, be humble, realize that things are really difficult. If you have a strong opinion, like Trump usually has, <laughs> that's a bad indicator. That, that can mean that you're way out there. It can mean that you're really, really, really right too. Yeah. But on average, it means that you have worse judgment than someone who is nuanced and realizes how difficult things are. And then if we look at that sort of research and look at Spotify, I think a contributing factor to their success could be that it was a pretty flat organization. I could come in as a 21-year-old, not a lot of experience. That was my first full-time job. And I could talk to the CEO and say, I don't believe X should happen. And that, I think, is powerful, and it, it sort of creates at least a more nuanced culture, and that at least correlates with the research. I think that's important. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, before we finish, we're going to do a checkout, right? Yeah, and again, we're going to go with an emoji. I can start. So my emoji before was two hands that go together, like thankfulness, but now I want to twist them and clap instead. Because I think this was a really good conversation and it was really fun to have you as our guest today. Nice. Thank you. I am the um, emoji that has the hand below the chin, like looking upwards, like thinking, thinking emoji. Like you used to do on images when you were young. <laughs> yeah. <Yes. laughs> or I did. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I did. Yeah. And that's mostly because I, I feel like I talked a lot. I don't remember what I said. It's always an issue, and it feels okay. I would do a train emoji, <laughs> just because I'm I'm on a roll and I'm just going. That's what I feel like. You got you got me. You gave yeah. me a boost here. Today. Boom! Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And a big shout out to Beppo Studios for letting us record here today. And uh, this would not be possible without you guys. Thank you. Don't forget to follow HyperTalks on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. See you next episode.